This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by David Aronovich, Juliet Samuel and Robbie Millen. Lucky Scotland. Defence Secretary Philip Hammond is there this week amid what seemed like a coordinated series of warnings about the impact of a yes vote on the UK's defence capabilities. This included an intervention from a serving officer, Admiral Sir George Zambellis, on the weakening of the Navy. And, as expected, the campaigners for independence have replied by accusing unionists of scare tactics. Are these scare tactics or are these warnings essentially true? And even if they are, might they not be counterproductive? It's very hard to judge. With Greece returning to international bond markets for the first time in four years last week, the Eurozone has clearly turned a corner. Unemployment seems to have peaked, deficits are at reasonable levels and investors are even keen to buy new shares in Spanish and Greek banks. But Europe now faces the danger it could let up on reform needed to provide long-term prosperity. Do Europeans have the stomach for it? Savage Avid hadn't even had a chance to peek in his red box before he was being attacked for not being sufficiently cultured. Not only was Michael Rosen's open letter discourteous, but it also showed the problem with the arts world. They think a culture can only exist with public subsidy. The new culture secretary could help the creative sector by denationalising it. So those are our uh, three topics, and we'll begin with yours, uh, David Aronovich. We've had what seems to be yet another attempt by what Alex Salmon will undoubtedly present as the London establishment, warning Scots that this time the Royal Navy and their defence is at risk. Isn't this counterproductive? Well, that's that's the question. And I mean, uh, the essential problem, I should state, right before we get into the body of this, is actually I don't know is the answer. You're a uh, columnist. We went to decisive, I don't know, no, no, I, know, I know what I think of the warnings, but I don't know whether it's counterproductive or not. In other words, it's going to be very difficult to tell. There is, a, there is a school of thinking which is held by some of the best pollsters I know, uh, but it's not held by everybody, that actually what the cumulative effect of warnings like this will be is that by the time, at that moment when the Scottish electorate stand over that ballot paper mm. with the pen poised between yes and no, 
some of this will resonate and they'll say, is it really worth the series of mm. risks which we might be running? And that they will go for no. Now, we know the counter-argument to that is that actually there's a kind of defiant streak in the Scots, that they dislike this impression of being told things, and that also, incidentally, that such warnings detract from the positive message which you should be sending out about what a wonderful kind of Hawaiian paradise the United <laughs> Kingdom uh, actually it is. It will be after global warming. Anyway. Uh, exactly. I mean, we've got a lot to look forward to, and then the Scots <laughs> will want to come down to our Riviera, etc., although they will be enjoying superb weather of their own. Um, but anyway, what is what is actually it's very difficult. You can argue quite easily about whether or not these are scare tactics or not. What is actually much more difficult to work out is what the effect will be. And Robbie Millen, first of all, I should welcome you. Your first time on our podcast. I'm very excited. Great, great to have you. As our, I'm as sitting our, next to him. It's true. <laughs> as our as our literary editor. Actually, that was said on Radio Four this week. That exact line. <laughs> Robbie, isn't the danger that if you're a proud Scot? Um, all of these warnings about you can't really cope on your own, they could be counterproductive. Isn't the best argument, if we want to maintain the union, that Scotland could perfectly well manage on its own? It just will be, we are better together, to use the uh, unionist campaign's phrase. I think if you're a proud Scot, you should be able to cope with the difficult arguments. And, you know, if there's a problem with the the fate of the, the Navy, the Perhaps Scotland couldn't have the kind of level of armed forces that it would hope for. Then it should be said. I mean, if the Scots are so thin-skinned and can't take any kind of uh, um, sort of negative campaigning, then you know, well, there's no hope for the union anyway. <laughs> so, Juliet Samuel, all uh, the sea uh, first sea lord and the former first sea lords and the treasury officials and all the other people that are speaking to this debate, European officials, all they're doing is providing the Scots with information that's helpful for them to make their decision in September. <laughs> well, I think uh, if you're going to have a vote on independence, then you have to tackle questions that might result in uh, horrible negative arguments. But uh, the the fact is you can't really fight it like a normal election campaign. You can't really say, uh, you know, fight it just on, on you know, what, what, are, what are our policies going to be for the next five years because these are fundamental issues. But on defence, it seems to some degree that this is all stating the obvious. I mean, if, you, if Scotland becomes a separate nation, then obviously the United part of being a, a in a sovereign nation is have part of the definition of that is having a united defense force so to some degree this is just stating what will the have obvious, to happen yeah. which is that they will have to have a separate army and if you know if you are a proud scot i suppose you could point out that probably a disproportionate number of our wars have been fought by scottish people um and uh, a lot of our shipbuilding capacity is is in scotland but uh, to, to some degree, that's it's all part and parcel of independence. That's what independence means. So, in in a way, that probably the defence debate is less worrying for the Scots. It's more worrying for the English in a way, because David Aronovich, we could lose the base well, where we where we headquarter our nuclear deterrent. Well, actually, as I understood the warnings that were made made this week, they are actually not about the problem for Scotland at all. They are actually about the problem for the United Kingdom mm. and the United Kingdom's defence force. Now, of course, what that means is, de facto, that Scotland is less well defended under the, in this scenario than it would otherwise be, because it comes under the umbrella of the United Kingdom. Don't uh, the ice uh, attack, No, I mean, I think, actually, I don't think most of our defence preparations are predicated 
adjudicated on the basis of, uh, of a conflict with Iceland. However, that is, that is the most likely conflict for the Scots. That's perfectly true. And as long as they're able to defend themselves from Iceland, etc. No, no, let's not, let's not be silly about this, Robbie. Um, uh, We're not going to have Robbie on the programme again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're um, about... Well, so, 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 so they're actually about the UK capability, but they will be taken as being warnings about uh, Scottish capability. And this goes together with, if you like, what has happened over the, over the currency issue, where there was an anonymous minister briefed off to the Guardian, so this person still hasn't come forward, that actually mm. there, could be a, there would be a currency union. Mm. Um, in what I think is a kind of... And, 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 you have this incredible lack of realism, I think, among some of the Scots Yes campaigners, whereby they have, they don't imagine the rest of the United Kingdom as a political entity with its own politics and its own reaction to whatever they're doing. I, you know, you, you, you want to say to them, look, this currency union you think is going to happen. We're not going to do it. Mm. You know, you really are not going to do it. It means what it says. Your anonymous minister can say what he or she likes, but actually it isn't going to happen. Um, Robbie, one of the... Uh, Trump cards that Alex Hammond may yet play in his battle to win this debate might be the idea that you're not just voting Scotland for independence, you're voting for freedom from Tory mm. rule. And if the opinion polls continue to move, as they're gently moving at the moment in the Tory favour, do you think there's a risk that a, um, the referendum won't be about the independence of Scotland? It will also be a referendum on the possibility of another five years of Tory-led austerity. And how, how much do you think that would play in Scottish voters' minds? I think a, a large amount. I mean, I think there's such a visceral anti-Tory hatred. It's, it's kind of a psychological disturbance in a lot of Scots people. So I don't think it matters. A psychological disturbance? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a, it kind of goes beyond just... <laughs> They want to sort of do slightly different things with the welfare budget or raise taxes or it's almost this way it's, or that almost way. a cultural toxicity exactly. now for the Tories in Scotland. You put it yeah. very eloquently that it's, I think they like, I think because they associate uh, the Tories with a certain brand of Englishness and it's also... Uh, is it Englishness or is it just sort of like a capitalist... No, I think it's a sort of English colonial masters. There's a big class component in it. It's kind of slightly demeaning, I think, for the Scottish... So many Scots to have this kind of strange, rabid attitude towards the Scots. But I don't think the poll ratings for the Tories going up a bit will make that much difference. I think the toxicity's there... And it's a fact, uh, probably not the overwhelming one, but it does. I'm sure it helps the SNP recruit. OK, so final yes-no question for each of you before we move on. The, uh, the opinion polls for uh, the referendum have narrowed a little bit, but there's still quite a healthy lead for the unionist um, uh, campaign. Do we think, yes or no, Scotland will vote to stay in the union? David? Um, it's very interesting. Yes, they will vote no. <laughs> <laughs> and that gives you an illustration of one of the problems. Juliet? I think they will vote no, but I'm, it, it's, it, I think it's worrying. Yeah. Robbie? I think they're chicken out. They'll vote no. Well, yeah. not if they listen to you, though, won't they? <laughs> After accusing them of psychological disturbances, I think we probably just increased the chances of a separation. If the Times believes in a, a no vote, it better not let this podcast go to Scotland, that's all I can say. 
Well, happier news than the uh, unhappy relationship perhaps between England and Scotland is that the Eurozone crisis seems to be easing a little bit. That's at least what um, you're suggesting, Juliet. Well, the... I, I suppose you would say uh, most of people in the markets would say the worst of the eurozone crisis eased. I think um, probably around around Christmas or well before, probably about nearly a year ago now. But what we had last week was Greece borrowing from private markets for the first time since the country had to be bailed out. So they they sold a bond and it was they were originally intending to sell about two and a half billion euros. They had demand for twenty billion euros worth of debt. People couldn't were queuing up to buy into Greece, uh, partly because it was one of the few assets that that will have a yield on it, so they'll get some income. But uh, the, as well as that, we've seen unemployment rates starting to fall, uh, deficits. I mean, if you compare our deficit to most of the peripheral Eurozone countries' deficits, there uh, ours is actually shockingly high. Most of them are now down towards 5 or 3%. They still have a huge debt problem, but there does seem to be a flood of money coming back from emerging markets going into Europe. And uh, most of the economies that have been most troubled are expected to start growing in the next few years. David Aronovich, the the Eurozone project that many thought would bring Europe to its knees and perhaps bring Europe apart, um, if Juliet's right, it survived. Um, yeah, there, there are two aspects to this. Uh, one is the future aspect that uh, that Julie's talking about, which is whether or not essentially Merkelism uh, can win the day if we take Angela Merkel as being the person who wants significant change so that this doesn't happen again. But it's absolutely true what you're saying, Tim. I mean, I've sat here uh, amongst the Eurosceptics for the last couple of years, and all I've heard is the Eurozone is doomed, it's all going to come down, it's only just a matter of time before the Euro falls to pieces, etc. I feel your eyes um, and frankly, me at the <laughs> well, no, well, I'm not eyeing anybody. I mean, actually, it was a pretty, it was a pretty widespread view, mm. and you heard it quite often. And I think there must be some fairly surprised people surprised that that's not happening. Now, of course, you're going to tell me, I imagine, that the game's not over yet, and there's still all kinds of uh, time to go and so on. But the fact is, um, these great Jeremiads didn't mm. work out, and I think within about a year or so, politically, some people are going to have to account for why it was that they were so badly wrong. I think if you are uh, uh, young Greek. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. For a young Spaniard, though, with unemployment rates of 40, 50, 60%, I'm not sure you'd ever say it worked out. But before I even allow you to have a reply to that, I'm going to bring Robbie in. Robbie, um, this has been a subject you were on the comment desk before you joined the, oh, the yes. books desk. And that was the overwhelming consensus, not just on the Times, but throughout, really, is that the euro would really struggle to, to hold together, but it has. Yeah, no, it's true. I sort of remember, well, putting the headlines on countless pieces where it was all doom in the Eurozone. It's over, you know, whether it was Greece has to be expelled or amputated or whatever. But no, it, 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 the Eurozone has survived. It, it, in a strange sort of way, actually, it's probably, despite that very high unemployment, been uh, quite good because it's forced uh, those the pig economies or pigs, do we still want pigs? To actually... Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, yeah. Ireland. Ireland. To, to reform, to actually take really drastic action, cutting budgets. You're the so, new Norman Lamont. If it isn't hurting, it isn't working. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that it, if they didn't have... Those countries didn't have that discipline of the Eurozone, um, well, then they wouldn't have... There would have been no reforming impetus at all. So in a kind of weird way, I can make a sort of Tory argument saying the, the Euro's actually been a good thing. Juliet. Well, that's that's exactly the argument. If you if you go to Greece or you talk to a Greek person who's who's come here to to work or there's a lot, lot of Greeks, a lot of Italians working in the city and you ask them the main argument for Europe, it is a class classical liberal free market argument which is the European Commission is a force for reform for improving the competitiveness of our economies which are are corrupt and morally bankrupt national elite are not going to make those hard decisions and are not going to mm. be honest with the electorate. And actually, Brussels is a major force for reform and and pro the progression of our country. Is, so is there's lo lots of other European electorates would rather be run by Europe than by their local politicians, basically. Well, I mean, it, I'm not sure that's the majority view in, in economies that mm you know, as you say, have about 26, 30 percent unemployment still. But it's definitely the argument amongst uh, the, say, the, the business or, or right wing part of uh, the, mm. those populations is that actually it's the opposite argument, basically, from the argument in the UK, which is that Europe is a force for socialism or for becoming less competitive. Yeah. And of course, as much as um, Eurosceptics may uh, in their principled hearts of hearts want the project to fail, Britain needs Eurozone to succeed. If the Eurozone economy goes into reverse, the British recovery goes into reverse. That, that's true. There's, uh, there's definitely a, uh, a conflict on the right in this country, which I don't think has really been fully uh, confronted between 
well, A, wanting, wanting it to fail because lots of people said it would fail or mm. said it wasn't a good idea, but also a conflict between a more tradition, the, the tradition which is in favour of a single market, in favour of free trade, and the tradition which is said, actually, we've had enough immigration, we want to sort of pull back and have a more... Mm. Uh, you know, basically put up put up the borders again, yeah. and that is coming more. To, well, that will come to the fore in the European debate. It hasn't quite yet. I think Judith's right, and it it reminds me that, in fact, I think that the major true political fault line is between people who are genuinely in favour of open markets and open uh, and, and free movement of labour, uh, and so on, and dealing with the problems that that creates, but nevertheless embracing it. And those people at the moment who, for left and right, want to move backwards, move back to securing borders. It's your famous National Party, uh, uh, Tim, and there are National Party-type people on the left as well um, who have a similar kind of autarkic fantasy, in my opinion. That's what it is. Um, uh, but that is the real, that I, I think that is the real political fault line. We're all Jeremy Browns at the moment, aren't we? I don't have a trapdoor button with which to put a press <laughs> and David Aronovich disappear from the podcast, unfortunately, but maybe for next week. If you have, if you are scratching your head and wondering what David Aronovich is talking about with my idea for a national party, what I'll do for all those Time subscribers is if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, I'll put a link to the article I wrote about the national party and, in fact, all of the articles that are relevant to our discussion today. Um, but we, what do you give people for Christmas, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> um, two, two lot sets of my articles. <laughs> Robbie, it's uh, our third topic, and uh, last week, um, out of the Maria Miller episode and the demise of the former culture secretary, we had Sajid Javid appointed as her replacement. And let's just say he didn't get a unanimously positive welcome from some of the arts establishment and that irritated you oh yes yeah now michael rosen the writer immediately sort of fired off an open letter published in the guardian of course basically attacking him for having been a banker sort of uh, questioning all of his credentials you know he's dripping in cynicism and skepticism about him and it was just that kind of annoying thing where so many people in the arts world bubble think that anyone outside of it who might be, let's say, uh, right-wing, is naturally a philistine, and that the only uh, way you can fund the arts is through through, through um, public subsidies, through taxation, through the Arts Council. As if there was no art or culture before 1946, when the art, Arts Council was founded. Is I thought, I thought um, art died in 1979 when Margaret Thatcher was elected. Oh that? yes, no, they, they read the rights back then too. Yes. David Aronovich, do you have sympathy with Robbie or are you worried about the uh, hinterland of Mr Javid? Um, well, let, let's, let's be clear. The, the, the name of the department is the Department of Culture, Media and mm. Sport. Uh, it would be asking a lot of anybody to be absolutely fully conversant with all those three things. So you're certainly going to fall down. No, there's a huge irony in this. Uh, yesterday, because I'm chair of, a, a, of the Free Expression Body Index on Censorship, I spent doing a day on having, learning how to fundraise, because fundraising for organisations mm. like that is very important. And we had a, uh, a guy in who trains people in fundraising. Racing. And the point he was making was about high 
worth individuals, including a lot of bankers and so on. And he said that effectively the places they now go to do their deals with each other and to meet each other is not in the golf club and is not in the men's club, but actually is at operatic events that they've given a large amount of money to. Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, when they go match. along to something... Well, women, yeah, or a test match or something like that. In other words... The very people who Rosen was decrying are actually the people who, because they have a lot of wealth and they give it away, are funding precisely the arts, or in many cases, precisely the arts that he most values and the cultural establishment most values. Now, people in the cultural establishment understand this perfectly Mm. well. You know, that you get the Vivian Duffields and so on, who, without whom quite a large, a large number of our most prestigious and most expensive art projects wouldn't actually happen. So the criticism is of itself a nonsense it makes of itself it makes no sense in friday's times um julia phil collins wrote a piece in which he said we don't expect the transport secretary to be a train spotter we don't expect um necessarily the foreign secretary to have an encyclopedic knowledge of every country around the world but we do still seem to expect um the culture secretary to be reasonably familiar with great works of literature or opera there is a point in there. Don't we need a culture secretary that has some sympathy with the importance of the arts, at least as an industry, but to have a feel for them as well? And in saying this, I'm not saying that Sajid Javid doesn't, but that's an important selection criteria, isn't it? Well, it depends what your culture secretary is for. Are they there to manage the, the government's interaction with culture, which is to say, I, I think mainly takes the form of, of funding it, in which case maybe having someone with some kind of financial background is quite useful. Uh, I suppose you could argue what you want someone who can ha- get the respect of people in the in the sector or, or have conversations with them that make some sense. But uh, I think it really depends what your... I mean, you could argue that, in fact, having someone from the banking community, as David was saying, is is extremely appropriate because, I mean, at least in London, I don't think you can pass an exhibition poster without seeing some bank on the bottom that sponsored it or, mm. or an oil company or something like that. So so maybe it's an entirely appropriate uh, background from which to, to draw a culture secretary. And, in fact, uh, you just have this prejudice that, you know, it has to come from a, some kind of public sector side because that just happens to have been the dominant form of funding for the last Mm. few years. And and on that front, Sajid Javid is widely thought to be a a rising star. He's come from uh, the Treasury close to George Osborne. In a way, even if you think the public sector grants are the most important thing, having someone as close to the Chancellor as your culture secretary, Mm -hmm. rather than a minister perhaps not well connected, Mm -hmm. is more important than having someone who can quote lots of Shakespeare at you. Right. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, probably among uh, cabinet ministers, Osborne's probably one of the most enthusiastic theatre goers and opera attenders. And, you know, you could could argue, I don't know what his taste is and or, you know, y- you could make all sorts of cynical arguments about why he stays in on the, the, the cultural establishment. And, but I'm sure a lot of it is just his enjoyment. So maybe having someone close to him is, is actually a good thing. And... Um Robin Millen, before we um, wrap up, Sajid Javid got an extraordinarily good 
press the day or two after mm. he was um, appointed, with people already saying he's only just got on the first rung of the cabinet, but they're talking about him potentially being a future prime minister. We've, the, the political graveyard is full of people who were once tipped to be um, prime Have minister you been and never prime made minister? it. <laughs> never? <laughs> never, no. You can get odds on him on political uh, Yes, you can. I'm, yes. 200, yes. I, I'm 200 to 1, but I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't wait so, well, you're tipped by somebody. The <laughs> thing is, he checks. <laughs> or does 200 to 1 mean nobody supports you? In which case, why aren't you a million to 1? Um, David Aronich, I'm chairing this podcast. <laughs> but, Robbie Midden, how, what advice would you give to Sajid Javid weighed down by these expectations? Is it a dangerous thing for him? Gee. To have all of these, um, uh, all this press coverage, or does he just need to brush, brush it aside and just get on with his job and just be very she modest? Just, I think focused. probably the, actually some of the best advice I maybe been from you was tone down the aggressiveness and the you can c- come across as a, a wee bit partisan. Mm. Just be a human being. It's, it's that no haircut, isn't it? It always it makes it always makes men look extremely pugilistic, actually, yeah. even when they're very soft. Do you, I agree, would say, do you agree with that, Julia? No hair makes you look pugilistic. Necessarily, no. There we are. You've been you've been put right um, by Juliet. Um, I think would. maybe he could relax a bit. Yes, hug a puppy. <laughs> hug a puppy. Well, on that note, we will end this week's um, podcast. Thank you very much to Juliet and David, as always, and to Robbie for his first appearance and all those controversial sound bites he's provided us with, and. Also, of course, to Dave McGuire, uh, the producer. Um, just one final encouragement to all Times subscribers to go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral where you can read some of the articles that we've referred to uh, today. And also you can leave a comment on anything you've heard, which is something that Nils Veng did last week, commenting on the Maria Miller saga, saying this was an internal battle which will damage the Conservative Party and the country. But most of all, of course, Thank you to you for listening. Happy Easter. We'll be back next week. What about Passover? (laughs) I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.